Well, I'll say good morning again to everyone, and um, it's my <clears throat> pleasure to get to introduce Lyle Burwell, uh, who's going to be our speaker today. With uh, <clears throat> Warren being out, uh, we've been blessed to have uh, people fill in. Lyle um, has been with us uh, for, I guess, about as long as Warren has, uh, maybe a little bit longer. And um, War uh, Lyle actually has a, a long history uh, of being uh, a minister uh, of the word. And they moved down here from Kansas and uh, to be closer to family. And we've been blessed to have them. I want to tell one quick story because um, this is kind of, I don't know how we work, but um, we were having a work day one day. <laughs> and... Um, and we were, this was a year and a half ago, we were kind of, we were, we were kind of struggling for a few numbers here. <laughs> and uh, Lyle and Linda showed up, uh, and they, they, I guess they had heard that we were having a work day, and uh, they weren't members yet, but, but Lyle and Linda showed up, and um, me and Lyle got to go down to Lowe's, pick up a little bit of uh, mulch, I believe, and Lyle helped us unload it, and and I, th I knew then that, man, if we could, if we could just, if we could harness their <laughs> motivation and their strength and their love for being in community, then uh, we, we would do all right. And uh, we've been fortunate that Lyle and Linda decided to be with us. And so, Lyle, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be quiet now and let you take the stage. So we're glad to have you. Well, that's true. We went down to Lowe's and got a load of dirt, but Kevin, I didn't realize that that would give you a load of dirt on me for that. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity to be able to come this morning and express our love for our Lord and Savior, the one who gave his all for us. Would you bow with me this morning as we begin? Father, we love you, and we thank you for loving us, though it's very difficult for understand that depth of love. Help us to look in that this morning. Hide us behind your cross, that Jesus alone be seen in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. I picked out a passage of scripture, Ephesians chapter 2 in the first 10 verses. Let me read through those quickly and then we'll comment upon them. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seating, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
in order that in the ages to come we might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Not as a result of work that anyone should boast, for we're his workmanship. We're created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Last week or the week before as we were gone, I heard on the radio some news that I had not thought of, though over the years had answered the question for others. The comment that was made on the radio was, every month there's over 110,000 hits on Google asking, what's the purpose of life? And also, every month there's 84,000 hits asking some way or another, what's the best way to commit suicide. I don't know if that's disturbing to you, but it certainly is to me, and imagine to anyone that would hear that, especially those numbers, and especially that people would ask the purpose of life. I've had people ask me that before, but never in those numbers, obviously. A few years back, in fact, at the beginning of my ministry, I went to a men's retreat, and there was a fellow there that had a poem that I want to share with you. It's called The Essentials. It's kind of been a theme of my ministry, I guess. I think of it quite often. I've committed it to memory, though I remember him saying it had never been written down, and to the best of my knowledge, it still has not. It goes like this. The theologians gathered. They came from near and far to the North American Annual Christian Preachers Seminar. And the evening speaker to thrill this pedagogation was the world's foremost authority on the book of Revelation. With three books newly written and a thesis on the Vulcan, he had a PhD in theology and 60 years in the pulpit. He approached the lectern with a hobbled gait, aided by a cane. He was bent and old at 78, and each step cost him pain. He said, I had intended to speak on the Antichrist and significant signs of the times, but a recent occurrence in my life has caused me to change my mind. You see, I stopped off in a West Kansas town on my way to coming here, to be a friend, a colleague of mine for over 60 years. He asked me to preach as he always does. And as usual, I agreed. It seemed they were studying Revelation and had a particular need. And it was the seven trumpets that had them all confounded. And it was the number seven and fulfillment on which I expounded. And when I'd finished speaking and thought that I'd done fine... My preacher friend, his wife, and I went to the reception line. My, they greeted us kindly, and when the line was almost gone, I noticed one young man whose face was so forlorn. He said, may I be of service? I said, may I be of service? I saw the hurt in his eye, and his voice was soft and measured, and this was his reply. 
He said, you see that young man over there? That's my baby brother. And he went wild at the time that father died, and he got worse when we lost mother. I prayed for years to get him to come to know the Lord, and tonight I got him to come to church where he could hear the word. You see, our preacher always preaches on Christ and the crucifixion and how he died that we might live and about the Holy Spirit's conviction and how he loves us with a love so strong that no earthly power can sever. I brought him here to hear these things. Now, he's more confused than ever. I don't think there's anything wrong with studying Revelation. Oh, my sir, I wish we all could have your education. But when a person climbs in that pulpit, surely he must realize that his one foremost responsibility is to win new souls to Christ. One love story, simply spoken, without intellectual perspective, seems to me since days of old to have proven quite effective. He said so long, and we went to the airport to say our last goodbyes. And since that time, my mind's been so deep in thought, I scarcely remember that flight. And so, my friends and colleagues and some of you whom I've talked, before I leave this pulpit tonight, I'm going to give you just one thought. I've spent most of 78 precious years building my credentials, and now I wonder how many souls could be saved if I just preached the essentials. If I just preached the essentials. That poem has probably meant as much to me as any other one single poem that I'd heard, and I do like poetry quite well. We can look at the things of life and wonder why God loves us. And I want to talk this morning about God's concern for your love of your life because God is concerned about your life. People would say, well, all you have to do is look at the statistics of life. Um, Statistics are a funny thing. You know, a fella said to me one time, well, statistics say that if you put one foot in a bucket of boiling water and the other one on an ice cube, statistically, you'd be comfortable. <laughs> Might be so. But we look at different information a lot different, don't we? I remember a couple of stories that kind of bring this out. One of them was years ago in biology class, when you, you remember those of you who took biology in high school and you had to have a frog and cut up a frog? Well, this teacher was having a little trouble, so he took a live frog, and his class was a little simple, I think. Might have been one I was in. But anyway, he, he took the frog and put it on the floor, and he hollered at him, jump frog, and the frog jumped five feet. So he went over and he cut off one front leg, and he hollered, jump frog, and he jumped four feet. He cut off another front leg and hollered jump frog and he jumped two feet. And he cut off the other back leg and hollered at the frog and nothing happened. He hollered at the frog again and nothing happened. He looked at the class and said, now what does that prove? One of the students who was already having trouble in biology class said, I know teacher, it says when you cut four legs off a frog, they go deaf. <laughs> Sometimes we come to conclusions like that. We get the totally wrong conclusion. People missed what Jesus was trying to do and say while he was here too. 
Or maybe we come to conclusions this way. A grandfather was encouraged by his wife one time, I know the feeling, to take the grandson who was just a little toddler, three years old, shopping. They had to go get groceries. And as they went, they started down the aisle, and grandfathers aren't too good at watching things sometimes. And the first thing he knew, the little boy had knocked over a whole box pile of Cheerios. Didn't break any of them, but they was all over the floor. And the grandfather says, that's all right, Albert. Don't worry about it, Albert. He started picking them up, but he wasn't watching Albert. And Albert went next aisle, and when he got over there, he emptied a bottle or a, a package of raisins and kind of strung them around. He started to clean them up, and he said, it's fine, Albert. It'll be all right, Albert. Don't worry about it, Albert. So he's picking them up, and the lady come to help him. When they got that done, they chatted a little bit, and as he went to the next aisle, there was his grandson, and he'd found a bottle of strawberry preserves. And it was broke, and he was trying to ice skate up and down the aisle. The grandfather said, it's all, Al all right, Albert. Keep your shirt on, Albert. Don't worry about it, Albert. The store attendant come over and said, I am amazed, sir, at the patience you have with little Albert. He looked confused a minute and looked at her and he says, my grandson's name is Johnny. I am Albert. <laughs> Have you ever had people ask the question, why? Children are great to do that and they ask the question, why? And you answer it and they'll ask why to the why answer that you gave. It may be the child will someday be a scientist or a mechanic or a number of other vocations that answer questions that need to be answered. But on the spiritual side, man has asked some big questions about why things perhaps you have too. Why are things the way they are? Who has failed to ask, where did God come from? Or why does God let good suffer? Or how long is eternity? Or any one of hundreds of other questions. But one question that has haunted me and it probably has haunted you at some time as well is why does God love me so? I remember hearing years ago of a professor who had spent most of his life and studied deeply in a lot of different things and he was asked by a crowd, what was the greatest truth that you ever learned? Take your time in answering and be precise. He said, I don't need any time to answer that. The greatest truth I've ever learned is one that I found in Sunday school as a toddler. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So easy to mouth those words, but sometimes so difficult to understand. We see in Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of all things, and from here we can also see the answer to this question. God is concerned with your life. He made you. He made all. He made provision for all, and he made man for fellowship with him. Probably nothing else gave God more pain knowing of his creation than giving man choice because he realized that some would choose not to love him. 
But God is in the people business. It tells us in the Old Testament that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but he's not a rancher. He's not in the cattle business. It tells us that he has created the whole world and he's flung the stars into space, but he's not an astronomer. God is in the people business, has always been in the people business. He's been in the redemption business. And I believe when a church gets out of the redemption business, they're in the wrong business. John chapter 1 and verse 1 again shows the spark of life. The word was in the beginning with God. Uh, I think I'll turn there and read that. The first four verses of 1 John chapter 1. What was in the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld with our hands and handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life with which with the Father and was manifest to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write that our joy may be complete. Ephesians was written, I believe, for unity. Chapter 1 is God's plan. And chapter 2 is the way that he executed that, that plan. But to get to the reason why, we will look at the first 10 verses, which we just read this morning. The first three that we read, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Why does he say that? Because of trespasses. When you look at trespasses, there's a different uh, def definitions apparently of you look, but basically the same thing. It's a violation of the rights of others. The sad truth is sin is fun, but the price is too high. I've heard it said that sin will take you higher than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and make you pay a price more than what you want to pay. Sin is missing the mark. It's not only a violation of divine law, which is the expression of God's will, but even more, it's a violation of the expression of God's character. The corruption of goodness, contrary to the character of God. And it tells us in these first three verses that we followed willfully. Following the course of of this world, not being led, not, not, not led on a rope, and not driven, and not coerced into it, but following willfully. Verse 3 says, <clears throat> we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. Remember, in the 70s, there was an expression called existentialism. You don't hear it that much anymore, but it's still as true as it ever was. Basically, the idea was this. If it feels good, do it. You've probably heard that before. The movies expounded that great. If it feels good, do it. Songs even said that. If it feels good, do it. If it hurts, let it lie. Uh, not a lot of truth in that. That's why we were dead, because we chose to be. 
God didn't want it that way. We chose that path. And he made us alive. In that verse 4, there's a contrast there. But God, that just seems to me like it's a whole sentence in itself. When it leads up to what had been said, all the things that happened, you were dead. You, were, you had no hope. You were a nobody in this world. You were condemned. You were lost. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, he loved us. That's the part I don't understand how he does that. Scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's easy to ask the question, who ran away at Jesus' time of crucifixion? And we'd say, well, Peter did. Everybody did. And you and I did too. And that's why it's so meaningful that while we were yet enemies with him, he died for us. Not understanding all the ramifications. Because God loved us. We like to quote the verse of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Did you ever look at it this way? For God, the greatest being, so loved, which is the greatest act, the world, which is the greatest physical body that we know of, he gave his only begotten son the greatest possible gift that whosoever believeth in him, the greatest possible group, should not perish, the greatest possible promise, but have everlasting life, the greatest possible reward. All summed up in that one verse. You see the contrast here? See also that God doesn't want death, but he wants life for us. Again, it says, I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Some have said the Old Testament God was a God of wrath. And the New Testament God was a God of love. I can see where they come from, but I disagree. And that God was always been the same purpose. He had the same purpose in mind. When his children obeyed, they didn't have anything to fear. When they disobeyed, it brought wrath. Not obedience. But God always been a God of love. Look at the way he made things. Did you ever think of this? You can just go outside here and look around and there's dozens of different trees. There's all kinds of flowers, there's all kinds of grasses, and there's even a few weeds. What do the leaves do? You know, basically, all the leaves do the same thing. Well, why did God make them all different if they all do the same thing anyway? Well, you think about that a lot of different ways. I think he did it for your pleasure, for your enjoyment. He could have made everything the same. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, From the beginning, God's invisible qualities, external power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. And those are without excuse. In Psalms 19.1, Heaven declare the glory of God, and the skies declare his handiwork. He could have made it all look the same. 
Can you imagine what a wedding would be like if we were all the same? The bride doesn't show up. Just pick one, it don't matter, all the same. The groom's late, it don't make any difference. Just have somebody else stand up, it's all the same anyway. Um, he didn't make us that way. There's no two things the same. I have five children, and each one of them is unique in itself. They're all Burwells. They all were at once. Four of them aren't anymore. But they're all unique and they're different in their own way. As a farmer, I realized that no two seasons are alike. You remember last, time, yeah, last year at this time how dry it was? And now we'd like just a little bit of dry dirt once in a while. Um, not always the same. But in Christ, we have a unity of being one in him. We have a new life. We're given a new seat. Alive. Why? These last verses tell us that. To be witnesses. Verse 7. Notice that. In order that to the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You have a witness that no one else does, and it works this way. When you tell somebody about Jesus Christ, basically, they don't know so much about him, but they want to know what's it done for you. A salesman can tell you that. He'll tell you what it can do for you, whatever it is he's selling you, whatever it is he's presenting to you. He wants, a person wants to know, but what does it do for me? You know, when people come into a congregation, when they come into a church, and you're all involved in this, every one of you. When people come into a congregation, it might be beautiful singing. It might be all kinds of a beautiful building. But the things that they're asking themselves, will they love me here? Will I fit in here? Will anybody notice me here? Because if they don't feel that, it doesn't make any difference how good the singing is. And Chris, it's very good. It wouldn't make any difference how good it was. It wouldn't make any difference how beautiful the building was. And this is a great facility. But if they don't feel wanted and needed and belonging, they'll go someplace else. Let me ask you about heaven. I don't know if you give much thought about heaven. But let's just say there was no food in heaven and no recreation in heaven and no mountain streams in heaven, whatever it is that you like, maybe no rodeo in heaven. If there's none of those things, would you still want to go? Would you still want to go? I think it would be worth it just to see Jesus' face, just to see his face. But the scripture tells us we are to work for the master, prepared beforehand a former plan that was from the beginning, before the foundation of the world. The whole duty of man in Ecclesiastes is summed up this way. Fear God and keep his commandments. You see, folks, that's the reason for life. And that's the reason God made us alive. That's the reason God loves us and wants us to be with him. God created you for fellowship with him and with other Christians. In John 17... Verse 20 to 24. Short passage. I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, are one in me, 
and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou dost sent me, and the glory which thou hast given me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and did love them even as thou hast loved me. I don't know what drives you. I hope it's something that's always in the forefront of your life that no matter what happens, you can still aspire to be that. I want to share <clears throat> something happened in my life here a number of years back. It has to do with my son. Now I have <clears throat> five children, Angela, Julia, Jennifer, Melissa, and Terry. Terry lives at Midland, Texas. He was the last one born. He was the only son we had. We'd given up. We never asked what was going to be ahead of time. So we didn't even have, after four girls, picked out a boy's name. So to say he was a pleasant surprise, yes, he was. But there was, <clears throat> each one of them is unique, and I could, I could tell you things about each one of them and share, but there's one thing that I think I want to share about Terry. Because it reminds me of the things that we look forward to. Terry <clears throat> graduated from college with no bills. He worked in the gas field some and other places. He didn't have any bills when he got done. He'd always liked to travel, wanted to go and do some things. So after he got out of college, he worked in a gas field for 10 months, sold his car, put on a backpack, and for nearly two years, he traveled around the world. He'd been to every continent in the world except Antarctica. The reason he didn't go there, he said, there ain't no snakes in Antarctica, and he's a herpetologist. He graduated with a degree in biology and Spanish. For those two years that he was gone, he worked in a crocodile ranch in Australia. He was a ski patroller in France. He worked in Indonesia in a tiger zoo and in South America in a monkey zoo and several other places along that time. And during that time, he had traveled meeting the missionaries in a lot of different places in Africa, some that we knew in the Philippines, one that we knew, and then others that he met along the way. He'd had experiences that were great. He'd swum off the barrier reef with the sharks, all kinds of different stories. He just, he bungee jumped from the highest place in the world that you can bungee jump from. He jumped out of airplanes and parachuted. All those things he asked me, Dad, didn't you want to ever do that? And I said, yeah, but by the time I had you, I had too much responsibility and I don't want to do anymore. <laughs> so <clears throat> he was kind of my hero, my son. Over those two years, I really look forward to seeing him. And we were to meet in Concord, Connecticut. Is that right? Or Mass 
Concord, anywhere there's an airport over there. I can't remember if it was Massachusetts or, or Connecticut. It's not a great big airport, but that's where we were to meet and then to go up and see my daughter, his sister. <clears throat> and I got there two, three hours early, and I thought I was going to go downstairs in the airport and get something to eat, and I went downstairs, and there's nothing down there. And I'm out of the airport, and they won't let me back in, so now you just wander around down there for a couple hours. And so I'm waiting for him. Hadn't heard much from him once in a while, just a little snippet of information of where he was, what he was doing. And during those times, thought about a lot of things and desired to see him and wanted to see him. And then about two hours later, I looked and come down the stairs, the first one evidently out of the plane, and from about 100 yards away, he was walking to me. And we ran, and we hugged, and we cried, and we laughed, and we backslapped, and we told stories, and shared all the things that had happened while he was gone with him and with me. And it was one of the greatest times. Now I tell you that to tell you this. One day, one day, you're going to close your eyes the last time. And when you open them, they're coming towards you will be Jesus. During the time that dear Terry was coming to me, all the things of his life kind of went through in a flash. From the time that he was born and I whispered his name in his ear, him riding his rocking horse, him throwing rocks through the neighbor's window, him all the different things that he did growing up in a short period of time. And I believe in that time, possibly, as this is what drives me, in that time of walking to Jesus and him running to me, that our life, its insignificance here, and the reward before us will be beyond imagination. In fact, in this same book, in the third chapter of Ephesians, it said, and now to him who was able to do above all you could think or ask. Don't miss the essentials. Heaven is going to be worth more than you can imagine. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, might these words touch our heart. Not that they're mine, but Father, from your spirit, that they would touch our hearts. That it guide us to be and to do for we are expressions of the grace and the truth and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lyle. That was a lot to take in in a short period of time. The thing that's sticking with me is, but God. 
Like I've never looked at that verse like that. And that, that just that resonates so heavy. Um, so we're going to sing a little bit about um, the sacrifice that was made. So if you guys will stand with us, uh, we're going to sing this song, and then we'll have our prayer of confession and then our time of communion.
Join me for the prayer of confession, and I'll read the the uh, lettering in white, if y'all will follow along in the words in yellow. We confess to each other and to you, our Creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, and renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, and renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, and renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, and renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to be more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. You may be seated.